Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 236 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie loving podcast of my movie loving website, thematinee.ca. Your home for cinematic passion and perspective. It's the holiday season, folks. My American friends are in between meals while the rest of us can feel the hustle and bustle ramping up. It's the time of year where people gather, where they catch up, where we break bread and raise glasses. In short, it's the time of year where you get together with those you care about most, which will be a running theme for the final three shows of the decade. And we begin today with someone who has been gone from these parts for too long. And we had so much fun when we brought him back back in February that we decided to do it all over again for another round. He is the host of the Film Stage Podcast and a world-class curmudgeon. We are across a wire to the beltway tonight with the one, the only, Brian J. Rowan joins us on the show. How are you, Mr. Rowan? I'm doing great. I'm uh, so happy that my curmudgeonitude has brought me up to the world-class level. I mean, I haven't trotted out the Eeyore meme in quite some time. <laughs> we are going to be talking about Knives Out on episode 236, but before we get to any of that... Brian and I are sitting here recording on Wednesday night, December 4th, 2019, almost exactly 10 years ago on December 5th, 2009, the matinee cast was launched out into the world. This show celebrates 10 years on the air tonight, and I would love to tell you that you could go back and listen to episode number one and see how far we've come, but uh, that episode has been mothballed for quite quite some time um i'm a senior citizen where the internet is concerned 10 years might as well be 100 and when i sat down to record that first show when um my wife Lindsay joined me to talk about an education and the fantastic mr fox i really did not know how long i was going to go with it and if i had told you i was going to be doing it for 10 years i would have been a damn dirty liar so uh, thank you very much everybody for tuning in if it's your first time tuning in or your 10th year worth of times turning in. Uh, I'm really, really proud to have been able to do this for an entire decade. Uh, Brian, you've been tuning in since episode one, right? Yes, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> you lion sack. At the beginning of the hundredth show, there was a clip from show number one that kind of led that off. And I do remember it was you telling me it sounded nothing like what you're used to. I, I'm shocked that you remember that. Yeah. <laughs> I I just I just looked up the the first episode of the film stage show was apparently April sixteenth, twenty twelve. Like it it feels it feels like forever, right? And and same sort of thing. If somebody had told you you'd been doing the film stage for seven years, you never would have believed them. No, it no, it's it feels like maybe four. Apparently, I'm looking at the 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 website page for it. It's it's, it's our new official podcast. The main review is the cabin in the woods. But we used to start off with a discussion section, and apparently, okay. kicking things off for our first episode, we discussed the newfangled marketing trend of teasers for a trailer with Ryan Johnson's <laughs> Looper, prompting the oh, talk. Ah, nice little synergy there. Yeah, I mean, like that—that's the funny thing too. I, I do remember that episode one of this show had a news segment back when I thought that that was a good idea, yeah. and we weren't sure if the trend of selling dvds with a blu-ray was going to catch on and make things better <laughs> how the times have changed oh yes oh man i, I almost want to uh, part of me wants to go back and listen to that first episode part of me wants to steer quite clear of it um but um again uh to everybody like brian who's been on this show to everybody who's listening uh who's listened to the show even once or as i said 10 years worth of times um thanks so much for all the encouragement and um 
I, I, I'd love to tell you here's to 10 more, but uh, dear God, I don't think so. Who even knows? Uh, but <laughs> who knows exactly? On episode 236, to start our second 10 years worth of shows, uh, we will be discussing Brian Johnson's Knives Out. We'll be turning the record over to play the other side. But first, we need to learn more about Brian. This is Know Your Enemy. Mr. Rowan first appeared on episode 63, where we talked about The Dark Knight Rises. We learned that the first film he'd ever seen in a theater was Jurassic Park. The last film he'd watched at the time was Win Win. The worst film he'd ever seen is Remember Me. The unseen classic or, or essential was Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Still no, right? Why you gotta keep asking me that? Why you gotta play me? I, I, I'm hopeful, man. Uh, and the, the film that he wish he made was The Tree of Life. Then Brian returned on episode 81. We talked about the incredible Burt Wonderstone. Mm. We learned the film he digs that nobody else does is Battle Los Angeles. By the way, I watched that on your say-so and you owe me two hours of my life. Not a fan, huh? <laughs> we learned the film that everybody else likes that he doesn't is Cloud Atlas. The last movie to make him cry was Les Miserables. In the movie of his life, he'd be played by Michael Fassbender. And the movie he was watching next was Rust and Bone. Then earlier this year, Brian dropped by to talk about High Flying Bird. We learned the, the film that made his love of film turn a corner is The Thin Red Line and also The Fountain. His first date movies, plural... Uh, were Mission Impossible 2 and Closer. And it should be noted that a lot of the times when Brian was on a date, he didn't entirely realize he was on a date. Um, That's my bad. The sick- yeah. <laughs> yes, it was. Um, his sick day movie is Shane. The last film to leave him speechless, rightly so, is Mother, with an exclamation mark. So I guess technically it's Mother! And his epitaph is from... Unforgiven deserves got nothing to do with it. So it's time for round four. Mr. Rowan. Yes. What is a film you like, but you never need to see again? So I had trouble with this one because there are many things where I feel like I would have said that, but then I thought about it and I was like, no, no, I've definitely seen that more than once. <laughs> um, so instead of going for the like the shock and awe factor, something like, you know, the war zone or Requiem for a dream. I decided that I would go with a film that I, I really loved, but that I, I just never picked up again. And now I'm not even sure I'd want to. And that is inland empire by David Lynch. Oh God. Oh God. That is a, that is a way to react to that statement. Um, I saw uh, that I... in, um, I think it was my freshman year of college. Yeah, uh, yeah. It says it came out in two thousand six. So that scans, and um, I went to AFI Silver in Silver Spring. Uh, it's like an old movie palace that got fixed up, and um, I saw it in their big theater, and it was like a transcendental, like transformative experience. And now I'm worried that if I go back and watch it, I'll just be completely annoyed with what a pretentious asshole I was, because maybe it won't hold up. I mean, I'm I'm having a strange relationship with Lynch because on the one hand, there's a lot of his stuff that I appreciate a lot more now that I really didn't appreciate when I was earlier on in my in my film going. On the other hand, I sometimes feel like he has just given so much rope that he is allowed to just throw spaghetti at the wall and explain what he wants to explain. But just leave the rest to, you know, 
oh well that's just for you to decide man um <laughs> and i th- this is one of those ones where I, I really really fear it i really don't think i need to go back anywhere I, I, i've never seen it but this is of the david lynch films i've never seen this is probably the one that i wouldn't even touch right because like mulholland drive <clears throat> i've seen numerous times and i've 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 dug it but like love that movie. just my recollection of of inland empire and uh, i feel like i wrote a review of it for imdb and if anyone out there really wants to <laughs> shame me they can scour imdb to see if they can find my written review for inland empire i might include a link in the show notes who are you kidding because <laughs> i feel like i said something like it's a movie that like totally upends your concept of what's even happening and it becomes like a, a kind of clockwork orange-esque experience that alters your consciousness but isn't really a story and like that sounds like the type of thing david lynch would want to do but i just don't know if i'd be into that anymore like I th- so basically i think i think this is actually a first as far as this question is concerned you don't want to watch it again because you don't think it's going to hold up I don't think it's going to hold up. And I also think the fact that like it used to be like a complete and utter five star movie for me would like shame me in some way. But Inland Empire, I mean, that that's a that's a really good reason to to steer clear of a film and just say, you know, it was what it was for me. But I'm starting to think when I think about it long and hard that there was a lot more going on or a lot less going on than I think. So I just <laughs> don't even want to go back. Um, I'm, I'm you know what? I'm, I'm actually kind of growing like that with the past as, as far as I'm becoming like an anti nostalgia mm-hmm. person. I'm like, whatever was in the past is in the past and it was lovely, but there's no reason in going back. Looks like I, um, I, I watched a Tony Scott film that I really loved the other day and I was like, Oh, this one holds up. Like, this is great. I'm so happy about this because I'm sure that many, many films would not, especially nope. ones yep. that I loved as a child. <laughs> yeah. All right. Good answer, man. Uh, what is a film that genuinely freaked you out? The Descent. What? Oh, are you claustrophobic? I am claustrophobic. I am not good in the dark. And um, <laughs> there's there, everything about that movie was not made for me. <laughs> and uh, I watched it in college with uh, my friend Tony because he was like, oh, my God, that movie's so scary. We got to watch it. And I'm not good with horror movies up front. Like, I have an aversion to being afraid. I don't know if it's like I find it to be a shameful emotion or something, but I just don't like being terrified. So when I go into a horror movie, I am very afraid of the fact that I might become afraid. Mm -hmm. And so we're sitting in the dorm room watching this and I'm like holding a bottle of whiskey and it's just not doing anything. And I was just (laughs) really freaked out. Like, before you try drinking the whiskey, I did. I did. Okay, I drank yeah, that because I mean, as your attorney, I must advise you: consuming <laughs> the bottle works a lot better than clutching the bottle, like a child with a teddy bear. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> and it was the kind of thing where, it, like, even before anything went wrong, I was just already could feel myself having a panic attack. I, I got to be honest: the asshole in me right now is thinking, "I want to take you to see this in a theater so badly." <laughs> Because if that's how you were in, in a dorm room watching a television in the dark of a theater, you know, with this movie larger than life. And I would even go one further and say, I'd want it to be a packed house, too. Well, it put you in the middle of that crowd and you'd have nowhere to go. I, I have wondered 
from time to time. If I would have had an easier time in a theater because the image would have been bigger. I don't you know? think so. I don't know. Like there's a part of me that wonders like if it was like squinting at that tiny television made the tight spaces seem tighter. Hmm. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I find generally I find horror more affecting in a theater because like you're, you're stuck in it. There's nowhere else to look. There's nowhere else to move. Yeah. If you're lucky, the, if you're lucky, the theater is not that crowded, but if there's just like nothing but people around you, it's, it's just, it's really intense. So maybe, I mean, it, it, you're right. It may be that when the movie gets bigger than you, it changes its effect and, and looking through that small portal just made matters worse, or it could be the complete opposite. And you're just really setting yourself up for a world of pain. That's true. I mean, I was very freaked out in a packed house for um, A Quiet Place. But yeah. the way yeah, that that movie ends kind of undercuts that. Like, I couldn't, like, thinking back on it, I think of that movie as a great movie. And I think of The Descent and I'm like, oh, right, I'm never doing that again. But then uh, <laughs> I couldn't use that for the previous question because I actually did watch it again because I told someone how scary it was and they wanted to see it and I watched it. So um conversely mr rowan what is a movie that always makes you laugh this was a hard one because i'm not into comedies so much um <laughs> yeah that checks <laughs> i was about to say that's an on-brand statement for me um <laughs> and then even even if like i am you know they're like i love who framed roger rabbit but i don't really laugh at that one anymore like i appreciate it so i was trying to think of like a movie that i've seen a couple times that is gotten laughs out of me each time and so it's 21 jump street <laughs> okay we're talking about the new one from a few years ago with yes. uh jonah hill and uh channing tatum and ice cube uh why that movie i don't know it just makes me laugh you know there's something about it like the scene the scene when they're doing the highway chase and they keep expecting everything to explode and they're getting pissed <laughs> off because nothing is and then the chickens do like i think lord and miller just have a kind of a kind of sense of like what's what's hilarious and thus uh yeah i i've i've watched that movie three or four times and it makes me laugh every time so did now did, did it did it sequel do it for you as well did you did you find yourself laughing like hell at uh, 22 jump street in the theater yes and then i rewatched it not too long ago and um it was not the same it's it's you know it's the <laughs> sequelitis it's it's what happens when you have a sequel i always remember about 21 jump street you know when we talk about nostalgia is how uh you know jonah hill goes back to school and he realizes that he was just in school too early yeah. but now he would be cool it's a very lowbrow version of inside lewin davis <laughs> I just we're there a little bit too soon. I also just love it's like okay, those are the jocks, those are the nerds, and then they see like the weird dressed up anime club kids, and they're like, I don't, I yeah. don't know what those are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very much like that. Twenty One Jump Street, of course, also you know, and Twenty Two actually, for that matter, it's got just a really good cast, and sometimes I find that that can be the difference in a movie is if you get like a really good supporting team, you can sometimes just watch them hang out and it can turn into something really cool. Jake Johnson's in that movie. Ellie Kemper's in that movie. Brie Larson, of course, uh, Dave Franco. Dave, when did Dave Franco become the good Franco? Maybe he always was. And we just didn't know. We just didn't know. Nick Offerman, we were course. just blinded, you know, 
<laughs> by the Franco. Oh man, I, I'm gonna have to rewatch that movie when we're done here. I haven't watched it in like far too long. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I could totally see that the, 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 that being a movie that always makes you laugh. So um, it's like it's like the Anti Descent. Yeah, <laughs> I watch yeah, the nice. Descent and then I come down with Twenty One Jump Street. Twenty One Jump Street, like right? Doing a bunch of coke and then a shot of heroin. <laughs> <laughs> Dear God. Oh. Uh, Brian, what is your favorite movie soundtrack? Train spotting. Uh, now, any particular reason? I, or, I no, did oh, have to kidding. ask. You, when you say soundtrack, you mean like soundtrack, not score, right? Well, you are answering the question, so you can interpret that any way you want. And that's usually what people like to do on this show, just to mess with me. <laughs> is to reinterpret your questions in a way that bothers you. Yes, pretty much. So, yeah, so I always make a distinction like soundtrack to me is like, you know, music from the film, but not music for the film. So I was, I was that's, thinking, that's what I was that's what I was going for. OK, fantastic. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, train spotting. Uh, I mean, it's just it's just got great music on it. It's got a uh, Iggy Pop. It's got Elastica. It's got um, and then the final song, uh, Born Slippy by Underworld is like it's just wall to wall. Great music in the movie that that is not overused music and um that functions well even if you haven't seen the movie but is given more depth by the movie like i don't know if a highway to the danger zone by kenny loggins would hold its place in my heart if i hadn't seen top gun right well <laughs> i think without the without the opus that is top gun that 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 song just completely loses its luster whereas Everything that's on this soundtrack works amazingly, even without the uh, the hijinks of a whole bunch of heroin addicts. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, the, one, the one thing that is kind of crazy is the movie is now 23 years old, uh, going to be 24 next summer. And it, it's almost insane to think that there was a time where Lust for Life wasn't overplayed. When they used it for this soundtrack, that was kind of the, the dusting off this late 70s you know glam jam of a song by iggy pop but now i mean you hear it in beer commercials all over the place you hear it in basketball arenas all over the place and it's just one of those songs that we've kind of had to put away for 10 years um the but same thing it's, happened it's with bonkers pop and a uh, search and destroy in uh the life aquatic yeah like people have forgotten about yeah, that but song I mean, and then it hits that and then i think i just saw it in like a lexus commercial the other day yeah yeah, it's it's bananas to think that there was a time and place where Lust for Life was a song that nine people out of ten would have a hard time naming. Mm-hmm. And yet now everybody's like, oh, yeah, it's that one. I love that one. You yeah. hear it and you're like, it's, it's Carnival the, Cruise Lines. Yeah, yeah. I feel like buying a Buick. Uh, it's it, no, that's that's a great. I, you know what? You're reminding me. I, actually, I I need to get this soundtrack on vinyl. So thank you for that. You're welcome. I, uh, I, should, put, I should put that on my Christmas list. Did you see No arguments here. Uh, I did. I liked it. Speaking of nostalgia, I did too. Yeah. I didn't right. love it the same way I love the original one, but I love that they didn't just try to retread everything, yeah. that they that they acknowledge the passing of time and how it changes them all. It was if you're going if you must do a sequel to this movie, I think that's about as good as you can do. Yeah, I found it I found it to be a very like emotional moving film, especially because like thinking of my friends who I first watched that with and how like I haven't spoken to some of them in many years and how some of them have passed and everything. And so I was watching the movie and I was like, this is better than it has any right to be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I never would have guessed. 
Um, and I think I'm going to need to rewatch that too. Last but not least for now, at least until we get John in another six months, what is a film you love that seemingly nobody else has heard of? Uh, it is a movie called The Page Turner. Not with Macaulay Culkin. No. no. That is no. The Page Master. Oh, master. <laughs> I probably shouldn't get those mixed up, should I? No, they're very different films. <laughs> Are you sure? Um, okay, pretty, tell people about pretty sure. Pretty sure. Tell people about the Page Turner. Okay, the Page Turner is an incredible fucking movie. Oh, I said it. I said the word. I there said it. I didn't say. Oh crap. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, now the seal's broken. It's every other word I'll say. Um, so Page <laughs> it's Turner. Your danger zone. It's so. This is another movie that I saw in college. It, it, there's a kind of weird running theme between Inland Empire, The Descent and the page turner. These are all movies that I saw within like the span of, I don't know, like a year or two. And, um, I went to this theater in the city that I go to, uh, E street cinema, and I didn't really know what I was going to go see. So I just walked in and there's this, this, the, the page turner. And I was like, all right, yeah. All right. It says it's like a thriller or something. I'll go, I'll see it. And I saw it and I loved it. And the next time I went back to the theater, it's one of those places where like we had these and so we have the DVDs too. And so I buy the DVD and one day I'm watching it in this house that I'm living in and someone walks in and is like, what's this movie? And I tell them and they sit down and they watch part of it, like the last part of it that I'd been watching. They're like, Hey, can you know, can we, um, I want to do that. I want to do it again. Like, can we start over from the beginning? And like, this would happen over the course of days until like every single person who came to the house for any amount of time, everyone in the house would be like, you have to see the page turner because it's this super tight, taut, twisty little thriller. That's basically a revenge story of this girl who goes for a audition at like a music academy. And because of the sort of callous disregard of one of the judges, she fails her audition goes home and is like, I'm never playing the piano again. Um, You know, my dreams are dead. And she closes the piano and then it cuts forward in time. And she is now a young woman who has devoted seemingly the whole of her life to destroying the person who made her fail her audition. And the way in which she does it is so fiendishly clever and all encompassing it's so good. It's such a good movie. How did you? F- oh, you, you saw it at the like. Did you just like wander by your cinema and they were playing the Page Turner? You're like, screw it. I got nothing else to do this Tuesday. Yeah, I would. I would. I like during the weekends in college, I would go and just be like, all right, what's playing and what I haven't I seen? You know, because I was a young man with wow. uh, time to spare and I don't money like, on your. It's in so your weird because yeah, okay. I, I just I I can't even. I've never found anyone else who has heard of this movie who wasn't someone that i showed it to first i can't imagine it had a huge release in america like there's a part I mean, of me that still wonders like why they even had it you know because it's not no, like no, it's an oscar play it's just a no I mean, it did play like it looks like it did play can that year so it's not and but but it played in a certain regard so it's not like it was huge yeah but at the same time seriously until you just mentioned this to me i i never heard of this movie before i am like really curious to see it now uh did you see this year on netflix did you see a movie called the perfection i 
am aware of it and I saw like the poster for it, but I did not watch it. Yeah, this sounds like that, but way better. I almost chose 13 Zametti for this, but there was an American remake of that. And so it felt like it was a little more well-known. Um, and this one is one that a legit your best like, play by far. Yeah. All right. The oh, page so turner, not, not to be confused with the page master. <laughs> yes. No, Macaulay Culkin entering books is not what this movie is. <laughs> God, I, I can only imagine if somebody got those screwed up. Some, some poor child would be just broken. <laughs> that would be incredible. All right. That's more about Brian. We are going to move on to the new slaying. Uh, we're going to talk about Knives Out. And I do not believe that this is a movie that you can talk about without spoiling it. So even though we usually do try to keep this conversation spoiler free, please be advised that we are going to spoil the holy hell out of this movie. Uh, Knives Out is coming up right after this. It's the new slaying. Come on back. I can see her lying back in her satin. Knives Out is directed and written by Ryan Johnson. It stars Daniel Craig, Chris Evans, Jamie Lee Curtis, Tony Collette, Anna de Armas, Mich- uh, Michael Shannon, Don Johnson, Lakeith Stanfield, and Christopher Plummer. Knives Out is the story of the Thrombley family. Plummer plays Harlan, the world-class mystery author whose books have built a very comfortable empire for his three children and their progeny. That is until his 85th birthday when Harlan seemingly kills himself in the still of the night. Or was it murder? Was that a, was that a, like, did you consciously reference the Irishman? Oh, for God's sakes, get the Irishman out of your brain. You said in the still of the night. (sighs) You know, that's a sign. Or should I say, in the still. That is a sign that a Scorsese movie is a failure when the soundtrack has one good song on it, and that's it. To get the truth, the New England police cannot work alone. They must get the help of world-renowned private detective Benoit Blanc. That's Daniel Craig. He senses motive from all sides and suspects foul play. By the time every card is played, all of the children and even one of the grandchildren seem to be capable of the deed. But who actually did it? Two hours traffic and we find out our answer. Folks, years ago I read a lousy little book. This is back when I did this far less often so it was much more of an occasion. Precious little about that book has stuck with me except for the fact that a character made a point that when a hand is shown and a lot of cards are still to be played, that one cannot take things at face value. If you're reading a mystery novel and the mystery seems to be wrapping up, but you have a lot of book left to read, that's a sign that you are not anywhere close to having it all laid out for you. So Brian, Rick, Jay, Rowan, pop quiz, hotshot. Where did this film leave you? For a film like Knives Out that shows its hand so early, did you feel rewarded when the truth behind the truth was revealed? Or did you feel as though it took the scenic route to get somewhere you always knew it was going? I felt rewarded. Very, 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 very rewarded. I I loved the fact that the 
as you said, like it seemed as though it had shown its full hand. And then you look and you're like, wait a second, like we still have three fourths of the deck left. What's going on here? And so obviously there was a part of me that figured that there must be something else. But then there was a different part of me that wondered like if the 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 whole conception of the movie as a whodunit had just been turned on its head and now it was just a movie about someone trying to get away with it. And so my my brain was torn in all directions to the point where I legitimately was like, I'm just I just can't even try to figure this out. Like it it, it behooves me to just let it take me, you know, and sometimes in a movie, I will attempt to figure things out. It's just human nature. You want to do it. And so for the movie to disarm you that early on, you're just like, oh, OK, then I don't think I know what's going on. Or if I do, then I'm just going to be interested to see where it goes. And um, so, yeah, at the end of the day, I watched this movie and I was like, oh, shit, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's funny because I ordinarily I wouldn't I, I would bristle at this kind of thing. I would bristle at, at, sh at showing me something so early and then, you know, like making me wait around to get to the inevitable. Um, but what I did love about the movie showing the, the I guess kind of the the, the reason why uh, Harlan has died. You know, we, we're not entirely sure of everything we're seeing, but we've certainly seen the main crux of how he died and why he died. Um, but the, the, the thing I liked about showing that so early in this particular story about a mystery writer is I love that he was so logical about it. it it's a it's a brief little flurry of activity when she realizes exactly what she's done because she's a nurse and she knows this kind of shit and he starts asking her questions because he's the writer and he wants to know this kind of thing so he's like getting his notebook and stuff like that and marking this all down and his he's actually logically spinning like how to get out of it and how to make this play and how to make that play and that's what allows it. If it was just a matter for me, if it was just a matter of, well, she actually accidentally gave him the wrong drug and that's how he died. Now she's mm. got to cover her tracks and all that kind of, kind of crap. I don't know that I necessarily would have run with it, but the fact that he is so fascinated by it and he is kind of playing a hand in his own death, which he then quite like, like he really does when he goes for that knife. Yeah. Um, that was a neat trick. Right, he's 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 like try. It's there's a because there's a part of you where you're just like Ana Darmas's character just seems swell, and you want her to to get away with it and to just be able to be happy and free with her mother and sister, and so you're rooting for her. But then there's another party that's also like, I just wonder if like Harlan just wrote his own death and is going to be able to get one over on the famous Benoit Blanc, last of the gentleman sleuths. <laughs> It's, I mean, it certainly does seem like that kind of thing of what can a mystery writer do for his final act, right? He's 85, so how many years does he have left in him? Mm -hmm. And, and you know, he's already been so successful doing so many things. It's like, how can you ever top yourself? At a certain point, you got to be thinking about exit strategy. And it could be, okay, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to play a hand in my own murder, and we're going to do check off this box and this box and this box and that's what's going to allow us to go forward so in that respect of him writing his grand finale it is it is rather cheeky for for this movie to do that it's just it's such a delightful little whodunit caper film you know there's so many parts of it that are so great daniel craig is just like a delight in this movie 
Um, <laughs> Ana de Armas, who was like my standout character in um, uh, Blade Runner 2049, you know, just does e- even better work here in a, in a similar vein of, you know, the seemingly, you know, sweet, innocent person who harbors like a dark question at their core. And um, well, she to this whole movie because if you don't like her like if she gives you any reason not to pull for her the whole thing just falls apart yeah so she has to be very likable very sweet and you know kind of this babe in the woods uh in peril from this greedy family right but still with a level of um professional and personal like uh what's the word i'm looking for like she's not a, she's not a ditz. She doesn't not know what she's doing. Like in terms of being oh, yeah. a nurse and being a person, she's so strong and so good. You know, her one flaw is that she just can't she physically cannot lie. And so between the writing and between her performance, yeah, they make a character who is you root for her not because you don't think she can make it. You know, she's not like a lost baby rabbit in a lion's den. You know, she clearly has skills of her own. But also she's just so nice. It's like her genuine goodness shines through. Well, it's, you know, she's the she's the person with a moral compass in this, you know, den of assholes. Like you're talking about a a baby rabbit in a den full of lions. She's an actual good person surrounded by jerks. Yeah. And it's funny because you think that somewhere in this family, there's going to be somebody who's not so bad, you know, like maybe one of the kids is not so bad, but just every time somebody gets to talking, they give you a reason not to like them anymore. Like even, you know, with the granddaughter uh, played by Catherine Langford, Meg, you know, at first you think, Oh, she's kind of like Marta, but an actual blood descendant of this this family and you give her a long enough timeline and eventually she turns into an asshole too yeah you know that's the funny thing is usually somewhere in here there's somebody with a soft underbelly who you kind of want to root for but that's the thing is is you know marta in this surrounded by the thromblies there's it's just surrounded by assholery on all sides so along with the fact that she's competent and she's smart, like every time she takes another step through this crime scene, she is noticing shit that she's got to, you know, kind of brush aside mm-hmm. and not just overlooking it. And it's kind of funny that the one thing that she doesn't brush aside is something that Blanc notices right off the top, but doesn't mention. Well, that's what's great, because there's there's a point in this movie where you're sort of like, how good can this Benoit Blanc really be? Like, he, he doesn't seem to have any inkling of anything. And then, you know, you you, you realize that the, the one clue that you think that the movie has forgotten about or she's just gotten away with, he noticed immediately and has been operating right. under the knowledge that she knew something and was using her to help flush everything else out. Yeah. I mean, the, the point where the tape magically happens to be erased, the tape that he handed to her happens to be erased. Oh, well, that's convenient. Wonder how that happened. Mm-hmm. That's the point where you kind of wonder, like, is this like Inspector Clouseau is yeah. on this case? What's going on here? But it's not. Uh, he's just he's just so good that he makes it seem so effortless that you just don't notice all the things that he's noticing. Yeah. Do you think is there a, is there a reason why they don't make movies like this anymore? Because this used to be 
Uh, it, it's it's, it's kind of crazy because they make a zillion and one procedural TV shows, you know, like CSI and Law and Order. And mm-hmm. for a while there, you had stuff like House and Bones and you name it, you know, all these kind of procedural shows. But they don't really make movies like this anymore. Can you think of a reason why? Um, I don't, you know, it's the, oh, it's the question that plagues me as I try to fall asleep every night is just like, why don't they make X kind of movie anymore? And, um, like there's like the fact that Sicario was like an awards play, like dramatic thing when like, really that's the kind of thing that, uh, we used to see all the time with like clear and present danger, you know, the Jack Ryan movies. I just, I feel like there came a point where companies realized that if they spent $200 million, they could make a billion dollars. And so why would you only spend, you know, $40 million to make $70 million, you know? But yeah, no, it's not, it's not like people are going to be wandering around with like the Benoit Blanc action figure. No, no, there's there's no (laughs) ominous uh, piano playing action. (laughs) There's no series of Funko pops coming from this movie. What was with the piano? What was with the piano playing, by the way? It seemed as though he was like, gently nudging the police in their in their questioning like okay making a point of like you're getting off topic or that's something to pay attention to just back on the subject of marketing very quickly i would buy every single sweater that chris evans wears in this movie i mean the the stylist on this movie i hope they got paid really well because yeah i i just want just send me one of everything <laughs> uh you know like you mentioned getting your screener and i know sometimes that they send you swag with the screeners i feel like if a copy of this movie does not come with a sweater that they are really really missing the mark or a donut you know but i guess a donut or a donut or a donut hole <laughs> or a donut hole with a hole um or maybe a that's, knife. Yeah. Just send me a knife. <laughs> Just, it's all right there. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're joking about like the, the, the inside jokes of this movie and, and whatnot. Ryan Johnson, uh, writer, director. This, I feel, is him getting um, really to, to stretch his legs and do what he does best. Like movies like this and movies like Looper. Um, certainly, I just rewatched Brick for Noir Vember. And if this guy is not one of the best writer directors in Hollywood, I don't know who is. He's he's I I mean, you know, I love him. And he, I've I've said before, he feels like my guy. Like I um I remember seeing a preview for Brick on a DVD of possibly The Constant Gardener and just immediately having to pause the the DVD and be like oh my God, that's probably my new favorite movie. Like everything, I I knew that trailer by heart. And then I found out that the movie was coming to E Street Cinema in DC. And I like got a bunch of friends to go and see it. We were just like that movie freaking rules. Um, And, and then after that, I just followed his work and I went to see him in person at a screening of the brothers bloom also at E Street Cinema. Um, you know, and just like I, I followed him, I wanted him to be successful because for some reason it just felt like I discovered this guy. Like I found him, I immediately knew that I would like his work and I did and I want to follow him. And then Looper was great. Uh, the Last Jedi is probably my favorite Star Wars movie. And now this right. movie comes and it's... Oh. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's things that he throws into this movie that, you know, on, on the surface shouldn't like lines should not work but the way he writes them and the way he writes them for how they're going to be delivered i keep coming back to 
Tony Collette as Joni when mm. when she sees Benoit, she's like, I read a tweet about a New Yorker article about you. Yeah. Which I can't even barely I can't even get my mouth around that one. But she says it in such a way that you know that that's how she knows this guy and that's how her mind works. Is she didn't read the article. She read a tweet about the article about this guy. Not only that, but the way that she says it is such that you believe that she believes that, that tweet is more important than the article itself. Of course. Like of not course. only is there an article about you, someone tweeted about it. And that's a big deal. Marta is is a really great sign of his writing, of how you've got to write somebody who's competent but sympathetic, but looking to cover her tracks, but at the same time wanting to find out what the heck happened and how she screwed up. And she, you know, th- the writing of that character on the one hand is is beautiful and deeply, deeply sympathetic, while on the other end of the scale, you get somebody like ransom played by chris evans who first of all congratulations of getting the all-american boy for the last 10 years and turning him into such a dick and was that his his thing before he became captain america i feel like he he used to get cast as like here's a possibly volatile human being uh the only the only other time I, i remember him playing an absolute weasel was in scott pilgrim uh right before he started playing Captain America, because he plays one of the evil exes uh, that that's an absolute asshole. Oh yeah, but he's the, I mean the, uh, the stunt guy. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. In sunshine, I mean, like in sunshine, he was fine. In the losers, he was fine. Like he's he's normally he's he was normally okay. But then at a certain point, he just became kind of like the all American golden boy, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. In sunshine, but, he's introduced having a fight with Kappa, and he comes off as kind of like a jockey aggressive alpha male guy yeah it's funny though because yeah, yeah like, and then he was johnny storm in fantastic four and he yeah. kind of did that again but then it's the losers is a movie that i have i i think i actually saw it earlier this year oh that's, god that's a that's a fun movie yeah it's the a-team yeah it's it's like the a-team it's it's anything like that but you know it's it's got a it's got a little thing to it and his character in it is is uh is is weird i think that's the best way to put it he's a weird guy yeah he was in but that that's the thing push so movie you, you read... which one yeah push. he was in push not push based that's on a novel or what precious based on a push by sapphire not that knockoff yeah yes um you know uh, he writes ransom in a way that is both, you know, just a, a, an absolute weasel in, in the way that you would assume when you take a look at him. And also just, you know, in a way gets his hooks in you, right? Like when, when Ransom kind of finally figures out what's going on and pulls Marta aside and tries to get the truth out of her in a way that he knows that she can't lie. Mm-hmm. For a minute or two, you're thinking like, huh, this guy who I thought I had pegged seems like he's actually got her best interest in heart. And the 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 loop de loo mechanics of Ransom's whole role in this thing, if if it's not written as sharply as it's written, and if it's not directed as well as they get out of Evans, the whole thing falls apart because he's doing some really high theatrics with this with his role in this whole mystery. Yeah, and you have to buy it because if you don't buy it completely, the whole thing falls apart. And I think one of the reasons you buy it is because he has had that kind of all American boy quality and so you sort of want him to be on her side and and not only that but like they do a very good job of modulating because it seems like 
you know, he, you're like, I don't know if this guy would actually just help her out of the goodness of his heart. And then he says, and then you're going to give me the, my share of the, uh, the inheritance, which he knew well, he wasn't going to get anyway. No. And, and it wasn't even like it was out of the goodness of his heart. Like you can see, like he hates these people and it's yeah. like, well, you know, if you've just screwed over all these people I hate, then I want to help you. Right. I am your new best friend. Uh, I'm <laughs> down to help you destroy them. Also, uh, I would really like it if you gave me my money, which I wasn't going to get in the first place. Yeah, but you've yeah, but you've just eaten a whole big bowl of bacon and eggs, and I know you can't lie to me now. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I mean, again, that's another feat of the writing, is there's a lot of things that this movie lays down that it is very, very careful to pick back up when the time is right. Right down to the way that Harlan says that you can't tell the real knife from the prop knife. Mm-hmm. You know? That that's the kind of thing that it's in any other movie that would be a throwaway line, but in this movie, that's actually important. Yeah, in this movie, so many things come back, and it's it's almost incredible the 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 way in which they come back. It's it's yeah. it's tightly written. It's it's so well written. It reminds me almost of David Mamet films in that way, except with a little more spring in its step, a lot yeah, more spring yeah, in that- its step, really. <laughs> now that said. Would you say, does this movie really make full use of the ensemble? Like, did you, I, it, it felt to me that when we get to the second half of this movie, the brood is kind of put in the corner in the name of Marta and Ransom and Benoit. I think, um, I think like Ricky Lindholm and Jaden Martell get a little short shrift. But I feel like everyone else gets their moment to play and and like they they justify their own being in the movie. Jamie Lee Curtis gets most of that during her um her interrogation scenes. But Don Johnson, like every time that he's on the screen and says something. uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Not like, I guess, racist in a way, but more like trying to be the not racist guy but who still has like feelings that could be determined to be racist like you know, that's a lot of racism yeah it's um <laughs> he's so good at that did you see dragged across concrete not yet okay so he plays a, a chief of police in that movie and he has this moment where he says the uh oh what is it it's like the the entertainment like media formerly known as the news you know, and he, he has like this whole little speech about how like, you know, you know, the, the appearance of like public correctness is more important than us doing our effective job. And he's just so good at saying that and sounding like he means it to the point where you're almost like uncomfortable. Oh, my God. Who there was a point thought- in, there was a point in that movie that when he's talking to, you know, Mel Gibson and, and Vince uh, Vaughn about stuff. And they're all like bitching and moaning like about how the concept of like tolerance and everything is like extended too far. And you're. It again, it just it sounds so real coming out of all of them that you almost become uncomfortable. You're like, is this what they believe? And then, of course, the rest of the movie happens and you're like, oh, no, these are bad people. Oh, my God. Who would have thought that we would have like a whole second act out of Don Johnson between stuff like Django and this? And I don't know if you're watching Watchmen on HBO. Oh it's like, my God, oh, am I ever watching like, Watchmen? Yeah. It's like I'd almost forgot about you, but that, that obviously would be a, a really bad idea. Um, I don't know. Like to answer my own question, I, I feel like once we get past Ransom and Marta running away from the will reading, 
the rest of the Thwomblies are kind of shoved aside in the name of the two of them kind of plotting to split this money. And, mm. and that that's the one thing I would hold against this movie is in the second half, um, I really started missing Joni and Linda and, and, you know, and, and all those characters that were just so bananas early on. I mean, I guess you could say that the trade-off is the first half of the movie comes and goes with very little ransom. So the trade is once you get to the halfway point, you put the rest of them in the corner, but now you get ransom. Yeah. You know, the look of this film is off the hook. They, they, they spend a lot of it in this house, and that had to be a, both a set decorator's dream and their worst nightmare because they've got to absolutely fill it to the brim with stuff, but you can't just go ape shit. You can't you can't turn it into like Ripley's believe it or not. You yeah, have to have you don't you don't want Harlan to come off like a weird hoarder. Yeah, I mean it's bad enough that he's got a throne surrounded by knives. <laughs> so awesome though. It's real close to not working. <laughs> it's it's definitely like that's the thing I think that is the most intense. And I read an interview with uh, Ryan Johnson where he says like they had this conception that like every time Harlan would write a book, he would sort of like commission an art piece based on it. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that is a reason to have a knife donut. But that's that's a little that's a little crazy still. Like, who, what do you like? What do you say to guests? I guess you just explain like, ah, uh, yes, this is from my uh, my book, The Circle of Knives. <laughs> like, I don't know. I mean, listen, it looks really cool, but at the same time, like, like if you think about it for just two minutes, you're like, that is absurd. Why is it there? Who is it for? How much did it cost? You know, it's it's it, it's one of those things that I I really got to believe that Ryan Johnson pushed for that thing because he had that visual in his head, mm-hmm. and the producer's just like, all right, fine, make your damn chair. What's uh What's hilarious is that in that same interview, which I think was uh, Screen Crush with Matt Singer, like they ask about that, and he's talking about it, and he says, you know, and um, you know, so the the uh, production designer and everything, you know, we had to rent the knives. And Matt Singer like stops him and says, wait, wait, the knives are rented? Like, where do you go to rent knives? <laughs> to the knife place. Yeah, there's, you know, it's Hollywood. Someone out there is like, just got a shit ton of knives. And he's like, my entire life is depending on movies renting these knives from me. <laughs> I, you know what? There probably is. The same way that there's people who have like fleets of cars. Yeah. That they there's, there's somebody who has knives or guns or or, or costumes or whatever. There's an but, army surplus store in Galveston, I think, called Colonel Bubby's. And I was told that, like, every time there's a production of something that has to do with World War II, that's where, like, people get most of their stuff from. Yes. Okay. But, yeah, like, every th- – this movie, it's really, it's a really tactile movie. Like, everything from, from that game they play – what is that game called? Is it called Go? Yes. Just like G.O. Yep. Okay. I, I always thought it had a, a way more fancy name than that, but okay. Um, <laughs> it was a, you know, that's a big part of the movie Pie, too. Yeah. It, well, and it was it was a big plot point on Lost. Uh, doesn't it come up? Isn't it a big? Isn't it a plot point in um, A Beautiful Mind as well? Uh, it, it really seems like it would be. <laughs> <laughs> that seems very, uh, it seems very. On Howard, um, you know, all those kinds of things or, um, 
just yeah the the layout of this house and the the where the 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 cars that they drive and the clothes that they wear it's like every single thing was really really deeply considered just like as much as creating a CGI battle between like warring aliens creating this entire house that that was a physical um presence that they all played on and played with mm. it's impressive well, it's, it's funny that you bring up the whole, um, like, warring aliens or whatever. Uh, between this movie and um, 1917, mm-hmm. like, it's, I've, but those two movies have shown me things that I find more awe-inspiring and, and interesting to look at than anything in any, like, Marvel movie. You know, it's, it's, there's something to what? be said for grounded simplicity with a touch of, like, extra reality. Over here is a giant, you know, floating mega city thing. I mean, you know, like I, I'm not going to recommend comic book movies because I I enjoy them like no tomorrow. But I will say, as a person who likes, uh, who has an affinity for tactile objects and for analog, you know, whatever, what have you, I do like when a movie goes to the care and attention to give itself weight, even in the simplest way, like uh, a movie that we're going to be talking about. I'm certain in two episodes when we do our year end show um, us, you know, I mm-hmm. loved the weapon of choice was scissors, you know, something so simple, something that everybody's held. Everybody knows how heavy they are. Everybody knows how, uh, you know, handy these things are and yet how dangerous they are. Um, that kind of thing, or a movie like Phantom Thread that was all about the creation of the garments we wear from zero, like everything from how they measure the body to how they mark down those measurements to then how they turn that into patterns and clothing. You don't, that that is the one thing I will say is regardless of what type of movie it is, whether it's a cartoon or aliens or a comic book movie or, or anything like that. The one thing that you, you lose a little bit when your movie is just too effects heavy is the weight and the tactile nature of the world around the characters. Right. Like wasn't it Avengers Endgame? Like all of their uniforms were like CGI in that movie. I don't know if they're moving like the thing I remember. I, I don't know if it was on your show or on um, slash film. Somebody was saying that if you look along the timeline of Marvel films, um, their, their armor and their battle suits became more nanotech as yeah. time went on. And that seems to do a disservice to what these things are supposed to be like on the one hand. Yeah. It's cool that you've got this alien technology that you can use and these cool effects that you can employ. But on the other hand, you're losing the actual weight of what armor that's designed to take a blow should look and feel and sound like when we get to the final act of this movie, um, a couple of things. First of all, Daniel Craig gives one, like Daniel Craig gives a speech in this movie unveiling the actual game afoot that is right up there with Tim Curry and clue, you know, Tim Curry in that movie, we'll probably talk about it in in a minute. I'm sure. But Tim Curry in that movie, when he has to unveil how the killing happened, 
it is absurd and he's running around the set and he's just saying okay so then we went into this room and he hit him but the game was afoot because the call came from inside the house and on and on and on and it's like a 15 minute sequence daniel craig same thing in this movie he is just talking for what seems like 10 minutes straight unveiling the plot and he never misses a beat it's the same thing as the way the tweet about the new yorker article was written for tony collette this mm-hmm. entire the you know the game is a foot spiel is written for daniel craig absolutely and i mean it, it's funny because i keep hearing i keep everyone keeps saying that and i agree with them i cannot remember most of that speech because it's shot through with so many moments and lines that made my audience burst into laughter that like some of it just got lost. Like when he started going on the donut riff, I was just like, all right, well, usually this is the type of thing that I would be able to remember verbatim, but I can't hear most of it. And I too am laughing. (laughs) And that's a problem for me. A donut with a hole in it. But then we found the donut hole, but we found out that the hole has a hole in it. (laughs) Yeah. It's so so insane. And it's, 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 it's beyond insane. Now here's speaking of insane. This is the thing. We get to the revelation of this film and we've got a revelation on a revelation, which I think then is still followed by another revelation. And this is the point where the film is just teetering, just ready to fall. Because if you don't buy it at this moment, if you don't buy ransoms, unbelievably convoluted plan to pull this off then the whole thing just falls apart well his the funny thing is that his plan was fairly simple but it became it was all he had to do was swap two medicines and take the the safety like the the antidote basically but he had to know that they were there and he had to still distract everybody and he had to come back in and he had to make sure that he wasn't seen. And then he saw Nana and he had to make sure that <laughs> Nana be his cover. It's just even just that, like on the surface, it should just be as simple as, well, he switched the drugs. Right. But he like, had to no, do a lot in order to do that. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. True. Like just in that one move, Ransom had to had to jump through a lot of hoops and then as you know as as soon as um harlan figures out what's happened and starts to send marta on her way to covering her own tracks ransom has to jump through even more hoops and and the fact that benoit was able to piece it all together first of all okay um <laughs> i'm buying it because I'm, I'm in for this movie but i could see how a lot of people would get to this point this long tim curry in clue revelation and just tap out and say "Uh uh-uh no i mean but i didn't have that problem and like i said it didn't feel like any of the people in my uh in my theater had that problem because i think that there is a point where you're just like even if i don't know precisely what's going on this is so fun and it's so unlike almost anything else that i've seen this year for in in many years honestly that i'm willing to like go along with it and the energy that all the people bring in that moment is just so great. And then it, it all culminates with, with Marta puking on him. Yeah. And well, then, yeah, yeah. One of those cards that it lays down that it makes sure to pick up later on. Yeah. Also, another one of those cards is uh, Ransom being a dick and saying, like, please call me Ransom. Only the help calls me Hugh. Right. And then, uh, right, yeah. 
And then you got Noah Segan, who's playing like the most excitable, happiest, like, I'm just I'm just so thrilled to be here kind of cops on Earth. And when <laughs> when Marta throws up, he excitedly says, that means she was lying. <laughs> and that's like he just it's great that the movie has that kind of release valve because it sort of knows that everyone in the audience is going to be thinking that, too. And it's always nice to see your reaction in a movie reflected in a character. Yes, the, the, this is quite true. And I mean, even like he's got that huge, silly grin on his face when he turns the phone around and shows that he's been recording the whole confession. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's stuff like that. Like he is he's always the happy puppy in this in, in this procedural. Like you've got Lakeith Stanfield, who seems to know what he's doing. You've got Benoit, who, of course, is world renowned. And then you've got like, you know, you know, the third stooge who just happened. <laughs> into this case i i love the film alone in just how clever and fun it is i know there's like the political element to it but it's so it's it's like such i don't want to say it's like toothless but it's not like incendiary politics to say that like too much money can make people <laughs> awful you know and i mean there's that i think actually i think it's political element is handled pretty well like you know it it brings up a lot of stuff that's going on in the world around us and yeah it it, it does play the whole point that you know rich people are assholes but it it never hammers any of that in such a way that i feel like if that was you or if it's poking fun at your politics that you're gonna you, you know that you're gonna get your back up right yeah no one no one in this movie is awful except maybe like jacob thrombley who is just the masturbating Nazi. <laughs> but like, it's, yeah, it's just funny because it, it either makes uh, it either like blinds people to their privilege or, you know, it, it makes them terrified to lose it, which is what happens yeah, with yeah. Meg, you know, and either one of those things is, is not great. And the, it, yeah. it's, it's kind of a cliche to say now, but the last shot in this movie is amazing. Yeah. The, the last shot in this movie is one of the best shots of the year for sure. And it's one of those shots that I, I would, I feel the whole thing building up to that shot is just incredible. Yeah, and that's another card that gets laid that you don't even think is a card until you see that. But like the whole opening, like the first shot of the movie, is someone filling that mug with coffee. Ah, that's right too. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, so good. See, now, see, I need my screener copy because now I want to rewatch it. I want to look for all these cards that laid down that I didn't notice because I was just too too caught up in it. Um, we end every matinee cast review with uh, a souvenir, something tangible or intangible that you could take away from this movie and keep. You would, Brian J. Rowan. What would be your souvenir from Ryan Johnson's Knives Out? So I want to say the knife circle, but I have a child, and um, <laughs> feels. It feels a little irresponsible of me. I, I think I think that's a great way to teach them, you know? Here's this giant circle of knives. Please don't touch it. It's very dangerous. <laughs> I think I'm going to go with... Um, I love that piece of the, the lattice work that breaks off. Okay. Because that is like my favorite recurring gag is like the dog running over to her and having it and her throwing it away before Blanc yeah. can see it and then the dog bringing it back. <laughs> the dog keeps bringing things that are kind of important and Blanc either doesn't notice or he doesn't care. Yeah. Because the dog brings the baseball at one point too. Indeed it does. Yeah. Um, my, not my, actually, that's not far off from what my souvenir would be. I want a house with a trick window. I, I'm curious. Why? Why do you want a trick window? Like, what do you, what do you do Just, with that? Uh, 
so I mean, same thing as why do you have a, a, a chair surrounded by knives? Um, it, it's you know, I, I like the whole. I, I just I like that that addition on a house. It's like why would you even have that? A, a window that's visible from the outside that is not accessible from the inside unless you know how to do it. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Is, it's like a secret handshake, right? I guess it is. I feel like that's one of the, I used to joke about how when I became an eccentric billionaire, I would make a house that had no right angles. Like it would consistently be just a few degrees off because I wanted to subtly unnerve every person who came into the house. It's kind of like having a trap door, but not. Yeah. And so you know, but for me, I'm like thinking about that. I'm like, why a secret window? Like, you can see the window from the outside. Like, you would think that the secret things would be the things that you can't see from the outside. But I guess there could be something weird to someone being like, there should be a window here, right? Like, isn't there supposed to be a window here? Yeah. It's, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's like a panic room, right? This room is smaller than it's supposed to be, but I can't understand why. It's like a the, the that book House of Leaves, you know. It's just like what exactly. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. That's, that's so I, I want to house with the trick window. Uh, we rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. I'm sure everybody can probably hear, could probably see what's coming already. Brian J. Rowan, what do you give Ryan Johnson's House of Knives? House of Knives. What do you give? <laughs> I want. I want that movie. I want House of Knives. <laughs> Can you get knives out? Knives out on a scale of one to four. I would say three and a half to four. I kind of want to say four, but then I'm also like, man, you know, that's that's some perfection masterpiece stuff. I feel like I mean, I feel like you're going to get to a four on rewatch. So if you're saying three and a half, it's three and a half on first blush. Yeah. In, in two hours, I'll be furiously emailing you, being like, edit out the part where I, I said three and a half. This is a three and a half for me. As I said, I, I I'm. I'm not entirely sure about the balance of the family. I, I might be in my head thinking of a different movie that that family is just like a whole bunch of assholes to each other and it, it wouldn't work for a murder mystery. Um, but um, it's still so goddamn good. Um, the three and a half is, is, is absolutely at least what this movie deserves. And um, yeah, it, it's just, it's entertaining. It's a grown up movie. Uh, it, it, it feels both absurd and very real in its own ways and it's it's so much fun uh hey maybe you think that we're both crazy maybe you think this movie is a piece of garbage maybe you think that this movie is a masterpiece and it uh, absolutely deserves four stars let me know ryan at the matinee.ca twitter where matinee underscore ca or facebook.com slash dark matinee what do you think of ryan johnson's knives out the prequel to house of knives uh we are going to take a very quick break here and come back with some more movies on the other side so uh come on back join us we'll talk about more movies We're back. He's Brian Rowan. I'm Ryan McNeil. Matt Nacast two. 36 <laughs> 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 my notes uh, okay. listen man episode 1 and 10 years ago I was all over this stuff man I'm older now I've got my own pace to this kind of thing 
I, I, I'm really sorry. Um, we've been talking about Ryan Johnson's Knives Out, um, and this is the part of the show where we talk about further reading, the other side, um, companion films, um, you know, just other places that you could go after the main event. Um, Brian's got one film off the top of his head, so I'm going to get things going because I got a whole bunch. And I mentioned it in the main review, so it probably seems like the most just obvious place to start but if somebody sees this movie they should probably go back into the 80s and watch clue you're right that is a pretty obvious choice <laughs> shut up did you I, I you've seen that movie haven't you yeah i have uh have you seen it recently i have not <laughs> it's kind of funny because i feel like nowadays it's probably most known as being a meme on twitter um with um Madeline Kahn talking about flames coming out of the side of her head. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, she's like, I just want to, I just, I can't, I just flames, flames <laughs> coming from the sides of my, and, and I feel like you see that on Twitter a lot when the world is just becoming too much. Um, it's Which is every day, <laughs> every day. Yes, of course. Um, on the surface, this movie is absurd. I mean, Below the below the surface of the movies is absurd, and it's it's based on the board game. It's a movie made in 1985, um, directed by Jonathan Lynn, based on the game that we all played as kids: Colonel Mustard, Miss Scarlet. Uh, you know, and everybody gets together in a house, and a murder happens. And oddly enough, it brings together this kooky little cast that's kind of cool because you got Madeline Kahn. Tim Curry's in this movie, Leslie Ann Warren's in this movie, Michael McKeon, Christopher Lloyd, Martin Mull. Um, and it's all a murder mystery with this group of strangers that they need to um, solve before the end of it all. And it's, it's the classic kind of Agatha Christie like movie. The real absurd part though, for people, if you can believe this shit, is that when this movie was made back in 85, they actually made this movie to have three different endings. And you wouldn't know which ending you were going to get. Which is when just you, insane. When you to, it's bananas. And I mean, now you watch it. Like, if you watch it, it's on it's on Amazon Prime. So people are curious about this movie. They can, they can go watch it. And there's a lot of shit in it that is really funny there's a lot of jokes and gags that still hold up there's a lot of it that's absurd but there's a lot of things in it that's still really funny but it's if you watch it now what happens is you get to the end and they tell you who killed them and then you gotta back up and they tell you okay somebody else killed them and here's how and here's why and then you back up again and here's another one it's like you get all three endings now whereas if you had a bought a ticket and went to see this in a theater in 1985, you wouldn't know whether it was going to be Colonel Mustard or Professor Plum or Miss Scarlet or whoever. Um, you just you the same people are going to die, but you don't know who did it and why. Which is just I don't. Again, not having seen it since I don't know I was a child or something. I just yeah. don't how like how does that how does the work with the story like the the a, a good mystery should not be able to have multiple endings. Well, I mean, think about it this way. You know, in Knives Out, there were several people who had motive and opportunity to kill him. Right. Right? So that's that's the thing. Is, and I mean, that's what makes a good mystery is 
a good a good mystery can have all kinds of reasons why you know that's thing like, in knives out like you, there's so many clues that in retrospect point to to ransom you know there's the the dogs barking there's the grandmother saying oh ransom you're back again already like right. so like you can't pepper in those little things unless you just have them be things that are like red herring sauce i don't know what that means um <laughs> little little bits of red herring you know to, to that just are not there it's for any scary, particular reason yeah. Um, they, and, and I guess they, 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 they kind of do, I mean, you know, watch it now that you've enjoyed the hell, the holy hell out of knives, knives out. I really think that it's just moving on to clue. And especially knowing that it's on prime, it just seems like an easy move. Um, and, and if nothing else, it's, it's really amusing just to watch all of these comedic forces come together and play off each other. I think that's another thing that makes knives out work so well is that you have all these people who are really darkly funny like jimmy lee curtis and don johnson and michael shannon Mm -hmm. playing off each other in that really nasty way um you don't get nasty so much in clue clues a lot more buffoonery but it is still really funny uh what okay so you said that you have one for sure what is your one uh other side selection that you would like to play uh coming out of knives out well i actually have two but one is one is like obscure to the point of it's not an obscure movie well maybe it is but it's it's not as directly linked, so I'm gonna go with my obvious choice first, and that would be Ready or Not, which came out earlier this year. Ah, which we did a show about earlier on this year, so there will be a link for that in the show notes if somebody wants to uh, take a listen to us talk about that movie. Ready or Not has like a lot of parallels with Knives Out. It's a, a an old family um, that's kind of like grown comfortable with its, with its wealth and. Um, has this outsider who is like a part of the family, but not quite there. And it's all about the things they're willing to do in order to keep their handle on whatever wealth and power that they have while living inside of a big stately manor um, that holds many secrets and is very much like a clue board as one character calls the house and knives out. Um, Speaking of clue, the, the family in ready or not uh, has a, um, their their whole empire is like games you know they have board games they have video games they own like apparently an nfl team and uh and uh, yeah it's about a, a nice but still um resourceful young woman who has to uh metaphorically destroy this other family in order to get away except in the ready or not it's not quite such a metaphor ready or not kind of feels like it painted itself into a corner and right when it doesn't know how to get out it's like screw it let's just do this yeah let's let's lean into it let's just let's like yeah it's that's such a goddamn good movie i think yes there was a point when it was firmly rooted in my top 10 of the year and um, oh god i think it's gotten knocked out as like you know we've gotten deeper into award season but there was a moment where i was like this legitimately might be top of the year um it and crawl i think are, are part of my I never did see Crawl. Oh, Crawl is so good. <laughs> I have a thing about movies where a young woman has to, like, resource and fight her way out of a situation. Okay. So, like, The Shallows, Ready or Not, Crawl, and now Knives Out. Like, those those are all for me. I, I, I know um, one of the guests that's uh, going to be on the year-end show has been trumpeting Crawl like No Tomorrow. So I, I feel like that's in my future at some point. 
I tried to think about a movie uh, that shows its hand early and leaves you to wonder when the rest of the plot is going to catch up. And possibly the most famous uh, example of that is Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. Ooh, that's a good one. There we go. So people who may not have seen Rope, it's um, it's not a long film. Um from Alfred Hitchcock, nineteen forty-eight. Uh, one of his one of his first ones in color. Uh, not very long. It's an hour and twenty minutes. It is there. There's a little bit of trickery, but generally speaking, it's all one long shot, and it starts with two high society uh, uh, underclassmen uh, strangling their friend to death in their apartment. Um, and then hiding the body and saying, okay, now we're going to have a party and it's going to be fun to see if how long we can get away with this and how long our guests can just carry on talking about their bullshit all while there's a dead body hanging out in the middle of them. And the whole, I mean, there's a couple of tricks of it is one, the crux of it is how long are they going to be able to get away with it? Two, who will figure it out and how, but then also the, the other kind of thing that you kind of start wondering is when is the shot going to break? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and this is like back in the age of film when one long continuous take was a whole heck of a lot harder than it is now in the age of digital filmmaking, when you can just go and go and go and go. Now, don't get me wrong in the age of digital filmmaking, it's still hard. Um, I, I think, the one that comes to the, the two films that come to mind in terms of one long take are a film called Victoria and another one from like 2003 called Russian Ark. But that even is a they great had, movie, it is, and they had to be rehearsed, you know, to the nth degree to get them to, to, to pull it all off. Rope did it in the age of film. Now, there are lots of cuts that happen, but they're seamlessly done in. in post so that it's basically just moving from one camera to another camera so it's kind of like you're watching a play but a play directed by alfred hitchcock with a mystery at its core that you're just wondering how long is it going to take until somebody finds out there's a body in the chest you know if, if you were to go onto the uh onto the wikipedia um for this movie there are 10 cuts in this movie and it actually tells you where they are and you can kind of figure out how they did it if you really wanted to ruin the illusion but the cool thing is just to just to kind of watch it all play out and see it as one long uh one long thing and as i said a movie where it shows from the top what mystery is to be discovered and doesn't it's not you know oh my god there's a dead body here it's how long is it going to take for somebody to find out oh my god there's a dead body here yeah what was your other movie that you you said you had uh, you said you had two and the second one was less obvious? So you you talking about um, hidden windows, you know, and us talking about House of Leaves and and this uh, opulent mansion that's kind of crazy and the kind of unknowingness of the people within it. I, I ended up actually thinking of last year at Marion Bed. Mm. Okay, just like with the the crazy sort of like the grounds and the grand house and this weird sort of sense that like everything is wrong and these people are weird. And so I think that just from a a pure atmosphere standpoint that last year at Marion bad 
is a is a good companion piece to this film. Um, tell people about that movie because I'm not sure that a lot of people have actually seen that one. Tell people like what it's about, when it was, when it came out, all that jazz. Uh, so it's 1961. It's uh, Alain Rene, and uh, it, what is it about? That's a great question. Um, there's this weird. <laughs> what opulent... is it ever about, Mister Rowan? Yeah, what is what is life about? That's what I need to ask you. Um, so last year at Marion Bat is legitimately, I think you could say that it's this woman in this like isolated, uh, I guess it's like a chateau or like a giant mansion, you know, where the rich go to have fun. And there is a man who comes up and says, Hey, like, you know, you, you and I met last year at, at Marion Bad. And she's like, I've never been to Marion Bad. I'm not from there. I don't like I've never been there. Definitely not last year. I do not remember you. And he is like, no, we definitely met there. At the same time, uh, a bunch of other weird stuff is going on, and there's uh, weird imagery. Um, This house is very large. There's like a shooting gallery. There's a game involving matchsticks that a man says he can always win and seemingly always does. Uh, There's people outside whose shadows are cast in a different direction than the trees' shadows are cast. It's it's this sounds very French. It is a super French film. It is. <laughs> it's so like the, the the French New Wave encompassed many many things, and like you've got your your Breathlesses and your your Band of Parts, and those follow a narrative that makes sense. And this is a more experimental, what the shit is going on kind of movie. But it's it's a movie that for whatever reason. Every time I watch it, I read a different thing into it and I feel a different thing from it. And a lot of that is is this weird environment that they've created that is basically a character. Um, it's funny because for a while I used to say like the, the place was Marion Bad, but it's not because they went to Marion Bad last year. Or did they? Uh, or, or did they? <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so uh, confession, I've never actually seen this movie, but... Um... I, I think I'm going to need to chase it down now. Um, it, it looks like it checks a lot of my boxes, and it, like it's is it? It seems like it's a handsome movie. Did you say handsome? Yeah, like like a good looking movie. Oh, it's a beautiful movie. Yeah, I mean it's 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 gorgeous. Like the black and white photography is just sumptuous. Yeah, um, the lighting and everything is is great. I mean, again, like what you're talking about, like like checking off the boxes. Any movie that's French and strange and handsome. Like the, these are a lot of the things that I, I would like go towards a movie, even if I don't necessarily like it. And I do feel like this is the kind of movie I would like, but there was a, there was a movie that played this year at TIFF that was just so absurd and, and <laughs> could the center of it could not hold, but was so handsome and so sexy that I just I, I went with it anyway. And I, I, I came away from like I, I stepped out onto Young Street and I just looked at my friends. I'm like, well, that was French. And um, and just we all just nodded like, yep, pretty much. This yeah, is, there's I, I, I tell people this is the quintessential French movie. Like when people say like, oh, French movies are just a bunch of people smoking cigarettes on chaise lounges and like that's this. You know, staring at the thing and saying one word and then it cuts to someone else like trying to kill a cricket or something. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I don't know. I think, I think French movies and I think stuff like Band Apart. I think people like dancing in cafes and like looking sullen across the table. Yeah. That, that's, that's when I think French movies. That's usually what I think of. Um, 
All right, that that is a very good choice for sure, and 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 thank you for that because that is one that I'm going to chase down for sure. Well, there we go. That is a whole lot of uh, whole lot of French. That's a whole lot of uh, dysfunctional families, a whole lot of mysteries, and a whole lot of matinee cast on episode two thirty six. Um, I'm so grateful for uh, Brian G. Rowan for coming by. Um, Spoiler alert, Brian J. Rowan also played a producer of this episode, and for that I'm deeply thankful, because otherwise uh, this show wouldn't have happened. So um, double thanks to my guest today. Come on back on uh, come on back right before Christmas, Monday, December 23rd. For episode 237, we will be discussing The Rise of Skywalker, because we have to. Um, <laughs> Brian can be found on the film stage. Um, what, uh, what are you guys co- coming up next? We are talking about Waves by Trey Edward Schultz. Oh my god! I've I've heard. I, I think uh, first of all, I'm very curious about waves. But the uh, the the tagline I've heard is that's a movie for people whose favorite Kanye album is Life of Pablo. Okay, I've, I don't know anything about waves. I've seen the trailer, which told me nothing. And, okay, um, like, I, I, but I've I've heard the discourse around waves or i've almost heard the discourse around the discourse around waves <laughs> and so i am uh, deeply concerned all right well good luck with that if people want to find you on twitter where can they follow you uh, you can follow me on every social media thing at brian j rowan very nice and there will be links in the show notes my site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Stitcher Radio, uh, Spotify, Blueberry, Apple's various platforms. Anywhere where a podcast is found, you will find it there. And if you don't find it there, let me know. I will put it there. Uh, feedback on Knives Out or any of the other movies we talked about today can be left in the comments section of the site. You can email ryan at thematinee.ca, Twitter, or I'm matinee underscore ca, or facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts, buddy? Can't wait to come back. I'm I'm glad that after you made me watch the incredible Burt Wonderstone, that the next two movies you had me on for were actually good. (laughs) (laughs) You're coming on to talk about a Marvel movie next year. Just you wait. You're going to have to lift your ban on cursing if you make me do that. Circle the Eternals right now, buddy. That one's yours. Is that a movie that's coming out? Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk. For Brian, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee.